0: Mr. Justice Douglas delivered the opinion of the court. Appellant Griswold is executive director of the Planned Parenthood League of Connecticut. Appellant Buxton is a licensed physician and a professor at the Yale Medical School who served as medical director for the league at its center in New Haven, a center open and operating from November 1st To November 10, 1961, when appellants were arrested. They gave information, instruction, and medical advice to married persons as to the means of preventing conception. They examined the wife and prescribed the best contraceptive device or material for her use. Fees were usually charged, although some couples were serviced free. The statutes whose constitutionality is involved in this appeal are sections 53-32 and 54-196 of the General Statutes of Connecticut. The former provides, any person who uses any drug, medicinal article, or instrument for the purpose of preventing conception shall be fined not less than $50 or imprisoned not less than 60 days, nor more than one year, or be both fined and imprisoned. Section 54-196 provides, Any person who assists, abets, counsels, causes, hires, or commands another to commit any offense may be prosecuted and punished as if he were the principal offender. The appellants were found guilty as accessories and fined $100 each against the claim that the accessory statute, as so applied, violated the 14th Amendment. The appellate division of the circuit court affirmed. The Supreme Court of Errors affirmed that judgment. We noted probable jurisdiction. We think that appellants have standing to raise the constitutional rights of the married people with whom they had a professional relationship. Tyleston v. Ullman is different, for there the plaintiff seeking to represent others asked for a declaratory judgment. In that situation, we thought that the requirements of standing should be strict, lest the standards of case or controversy in Article Three of the Constitution become blurred. Here, those doubts are removed by reason of a criminal conviction for serving married couples in violation of an aiding and abetting statute. Certainly the accessory should have standing to assert that the offense which he is charged with assisting is not or cannot constitutionally be a crime. This case is more akin to Truax v. Raich, where an employee was permitted to assert the rights of his employer, to Pierce v. Society of Sisters, where the owners of private schools were entitled to assert the rights of potential pupils and their parents, and to Barrows v. Jackson, where a white defendant party to a racially restrictive covenant who was being sued for damages by the Covenators because she had conveyed her property To Negroes was allowed to raise the issue that enforcement of the covenant violated the rights of the prospective Negro purchasers to equal protection, although no Negro was a party to the suit. The rights of husband and wife pressed here are likely to be diluted or adversely affected unless those rights are considered in a suit involving those who have this kind of confidential relation to them. Coming to the merits, we are met with a wide range of questions that implicate the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment. Overtones of some arguments suggest that Lochner v. New York should be our guide, but we decline that invitation as we did in West Coast Hotel v. Parrish, Olson v. Nebraska, Lincoln Union v. Northwestern, Williamson v. Lee Optical, Gibbony v. Empire Storage. We do not sit as a super legislature to determine the wisdom, need, and propriety of laws that touch economic problems, business affairs, or social conditions. This law, however, operates directly on an intimate relation of husband and wife and their physician's role in one aspect of that relation. The association of people is not mentioned in the Constitution nor in the Bill of Rights. The right to educate a child in a school of the parent's choice, whether public or private or parochial, is also not mentioned. Nor is the right to study any particular subject or any foreign language. Yet the First Amendment has been construed to include certain of those rights. By Pierce v. Society of Sisters, The right to educate one's children as one chooses is made applicable to the states by the force of the First and Fourteenth Amendments. By Meyer v. Nebraska, the same dignity is given the right to study the German language in a private school. In other words, the state may not, consistently with the spirit of the First Amendment, contract the spectrum of available knowledge. The right of freedom of speech and press includes not only the right to utter or to print but the right to distribute the right to receive the right to read and freedom of inquiry freedom of thought and freedom to teach indeed the freedom of the entire university community without those peripheral rights the specific rights would be less secure And so we reaffirmed the principle of the Pierce and the Meyer cases. In NAACP, the Alabama, we protected the freedom to associate and privacy in one's associations, noting that freedom of association was a peripheral First Amendment right. Disclosure of membership lists of a constitutionally valid association we held was invalid as entailing the likelihood of a substantial restraint upon the exercise by petitioners' members of their right to freedom of association. In other words, the First Amendment has a penumbra where privacy is protected from governmental intrusion. In like context, we have protected forms of association that are not political in the customary sense but pertained to the social, legal, and economic benefit of the members. In Schwer v. Board of Bar Examiners, we held it not permissible to bar a lawyer from practice because he had once been a member of the Communist Party. The man's association with that party was not shown to be anything more than a political faith in a political party and was not action of a kind proving bad moral character. Those cases involved more than the right of assembly, a right that extends to all, irrespective of their race or ideology. The right of association, like the right of belief, is more than the right to attend a meeting. It includes the right to express one's attitudes or philosophies by membership in a group or by affiliation with it or by other lawful means." Association in that context is a form of expression of opinion, and while it is not expressly included in the First Amendment, its existence is necessary in making the express guarantees fully meaningful. The foregoing cases suggest that specific guarantees in the Bill of Rights have penumbras formed by emanations from those guarantees that help give them life and substance. Various guarantees create zones of privacy. The right of association contained in the penumbra of the First Amendment is one as we have seen. The Third Amendment, in its prohibition against the quartering of soldiers in any house in time of peace without the consent of the owner, is another facet of that privacy. The Fourth Amendment explicitly affirms the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects, against unreasonable searches and seizures. The Fifth Amendment, in its self-incrimination clause, enables the citizen to create a zone of privacy which government may not force him to surrender to his detriment. The Ninth Amendment provides, The enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. The Fourth and Fifth Amendments were described in Boyd v. United States as protection against all governmental invasions of the sanctity of a man's home and the privacies of life. We recently referred in Map v. Ohio to the Fourth Amendment as creating a right to privacy no less important than any other right carefully and particularly reserved to the people. We have had many controversies over these prenumbral rights of privacy and repose. These cases bear witness that the right of privacy, which presses for recognition here, is a legitimate one. The present case, then, concerns a relationship lying within the zone of privacy created by several fundamental constitutional guarantees— And it concerns a law which, in forbidding the use of contraceptives, rather than regulating their manufacture or sale, seeks to achieve its goals by means having a maximum destructive impact on that relationship. Such a law cannot stand in light of the familiar principle so often applied by this court that a governmental purpose to control or prevent activities constitutionally subject to state regulation may not be achieved by means which sweep unnecessarily broadly and thereby invade the area of protected freedoms. Would we allow the police to search the sacred precincts of marital bedrooms for telltale signs of the use of contraceptives? The very idea is repulsive to the notions of privacy surrounding the marriage relationship. We deal with a right of privacy older than the Bill of Rights, older than our political parties, older than our school system. Marriage is a coming together for better or for worse, hopefully enduring and intimate to the degree of being sacred. It is an association that promotes a way of life, not causes, a harmony in living, not political faiths a bilateral loyalty, not commercial or social projects, yet is an association for as noble a purpose as any involved in our prior decisions. Reversed. We've come to the end of the opinion. Until next episode... Thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us.